Hey folks, it's Mike here. We have just wrapped up our last big show of the year in New York City. That show was with Lena and Jack and Rachel and Sarah Bareilles, Fred Armisen, Mike Birbiglia, J.D. Sampson, L. King. Just so many people came out. And um, thanks to all of them. Thanks to all of them so much for playing the show. It was a wonderful, wonderful night. Also, thanks to Toyota, Pandora, Chipotle, Gibson Guitars, American Apparel, and Above Average for helping to make that show happen. That was a really special night. If you if you missed it, we're that's an annual event. This was our second one, our second talent show in New York City, and, and I hope you come out next year. And I, I hope you come out to see us at an event. They they get bigger and bigger as we go, and they're getting more and more incredible as we as we move along. To the podcast, we are back. Sorry about the brief intermission. This week on Contact, we have W. Kamal Bell. We talk a little bit about this in the show, but I wanted to make it clear in the opening that I was hooked on Totally Biased when it was on the air. That show was special, and Kamau is a special guy. I remember watching Totally Biased and knowing that if there was something in the news that had outraged me, even if there was nothing to be done about it, that Kamau would at least like reaffirm your belief and, and, and really kind of support you. And I know that TV is kind of a one-way transmission, but it, it felt like community. There was something special about that show, and I and we get into it a little bit on the show, so I won't blab on here. Please, if you can, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. We really want to keep doing this show, and, and that's how you can let us know that you like it. We're also on social media. We are at Ally Coalition. Let's start the show. Also, brief editing note. I've chosen specifically not to edit this show, not to censor this show in any way, and I don't think I'm going to going forward. In this episode, we discuss slurs and harassment and if they have a place in comedy in 2015. Well, first of all, I think when I started doing comedy, there was still a, like, I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I started sort of in the wake of the, like, the alternative scene a little bit. So that there, before that, there was just clubs. There was just clubs or bars that did comedy, and this is before I did it, but this is how I understand it. And But there was just a crowd called a comedy club crowd, and then all comics had to sort of learn how to deal with that crowd. And if you were, uh, you know, a cisgendered white guy, then you didn't really have to think too much about it. I mean, of course, there's always been the Chitlin circuit, and but I'm talking about like the mainstream comedy circuit was the main circuit. Uh, you know, so... And again, if in the Chitlin circuit you needed to be a cisgendered black guy, you know, like, so it's still the same. You know, they had black women, but you know what I'm saying? There's still like a here's who we think the normal is, and then the alt scene starts, which is Patton has pointed out, just alt at that point, just kind of meant different venues, like not the usual venues. Some of the comics would be the same, but also because the venues were different and allowed comics to do different things, and it invited different people into comedy. And so I feel like I started sort of in that wake a little bit. So I did a lot of the club stuff, but I also was always looking for venues. That would uh, I was always looking to get in front of audiences that weren't going to show up at the comedy clubs. Not not always, but as soon as I realized this comedy club audience is not my audience, because at first you're like, I guess I'm just not funny enough because these people don't like me, and then you're like, then every now and again you get a taste of a different audience, or there, for me to be like that one older black woman in the room who's laughing louder than everybody else. I'm like, where do I find more of this? That's my that's my crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and eventually I moved to San Francisco, and then it's about finding the audience. Creating a, a space where the audience would show up who wouldn't show up to the comedy club. 
So that's, I mean, so for me, and now I would imagine some of those people are now showing up to the comedy clubs, and you know that because you see blogs where people go in and go, how do, I can't believe this comic did this. Yeah, they've been doing that for a long time. <laughs> Not in your space. <laughs> Not in your yeah. space, but now you've, you have now, I think the pro, this is inherent to comedy. People, and this is true for everybody, people go, I like stand-up comedy. And what they're really saying is, I like a handful of comedians. And so then they go into spaces that say on the door, stand-up comedy. And they walk through the door, and this is true. And you sit down, and then the moment someone comes on stage who's not doing it the way you want, you go, that's not stand-up comedy. And we're all smart enough as a grown-up people to know you don't do that with music. You may not like The Clash. <laughs> you, may not, you, know, you may prefer R. Kelly, but you're not going to say The Clash isn't music. And if you are, you just end up looking really stupid. But in comedy, people feel very entitled to say, if I don't think it's funny, then it's not comedy. That's true. Like if you went to if you went to any metal show and you were like, I love live music, and you showed up and you were like, Oh well, this isn't music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Is, yeah. And there are people who say that, but they're just they're like your parents. You know, yeah, like, they're, yeah. like, they're not they're not the with it sort of mean demographic of people who do things. You know, so it's like you know, and and I think that but with comedy, you will have those people who are very smart and intelligent, and thoughtful. Go, I didn't like this comic, so that's not comedy. And I just feel like. <sighs> That's part of the gig is that you're not going to like everybody, thankfully, you know, and if and if and luckily that creates space for comics like uh, Cameron and myself and Maria Bamford and, you know, who aren't doing it. And I'm way more mainstream than Maria Bamford. Let me be clear about that. And I'm way more acceptable cisgender to a comedy club than Cameron. But I still feel like I don't go up and do the things that I think other com- that, I, that I see other comedians do not good, bad or indifferent. Just I do different things. So, so I want to kind of pick you about that a little bit. What, um, and and first of all, we I should feel like we always stay. We already started. <laughs> <laughs> I just picked up the microphone and kept talking. No, but that's great. I lo- I love the kind of like soft intro yeah. thing. Yeah. But we should. Um, uh, this is Mike. I am sitting here in the basement of BU uh, with W. Kamal Bell. Thank you so much for being on. This is really great. No problem. Um, so we were we were talking a little bit before. Um, Kamal has been. Can I do you, do you do Kamal? Kamal's great. Yeah, great. Um, we're friends now. Yeah, um, we we were talking a little bit before that. I have worked on a couple shows that you have been on, and so this this like isn't our first time meeting, but this is our first time like actually yeah. talking because I've been very much behind the scenes, and you've mm-hmm. been on the on the stage. Yeah, but so I, I wanted to to get back to what we were just talking about to pick you a little bit. Do you you've been talking about the alt comedy scene? Do you do you feel like an alt comic? Do you feel like a main like more of a mainstream? I now? mean, I, if if you, if you have to throw me in one box or the other, I mean my. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm telling jokes. I'm doing punchlines. I'm doing big act outs. I'm not, you know, so my style is that of a mainstream comic. It's just the subject matter is is not that of a mainstream comic, you know. So, and even that, I'm talking about race and racism. A lot of black comics talk. It's just there's no. So here's what I feel like. I feel like in San Francisco, and I feel like this all. I basically there was an alt scene in San Francisco. Certainly, I mean, you know, it's been there since the the San Francisco first. Said, Comedy should have an alt scene. Probably back in the '60s. Uh, you know, the modern stand-up was sort of was invented in San Francisco by by Mort Saul would take credit for it. But uh, so there was an alt scene in San Francisco. I would perform in those scenes, but I would not necessarily feel like these are my people because it's still a very white scene, the alt scene. But I would do fine. It sometimes I'd do better than in the club. But I also perform in the clubs, and I would do fine, or sometimes I'd do better. And then at some point, I was like, I, I didn't really think of it this way, but I was like, I want to write a show that I want to see, and that's when I wrote my solo show. And then people started coming, and I'm like, oh, these are my people. And it was a very mixed crowd, a very, you know, crowd, uh, 
a more sort of either activist or activist adjacent crowd, like a crowd who who keeps up with the news and pays attention to the struggle and either is deeply involved in it or sympathetic to it or empathetic to it. Uh, also, because I had an offer for my show, if you brought a friend of a different race, you got in two for one. It was a very racially mixed crowd. And that I sort of create sort of accidentally because I just wanted to create a show and have people come see it, created a crowd that now those are my people. Now, they're not the alt comedy club crowd. They're not they're not the if you go to UCB on Monday night and go to Whiplash, it's not those people. But they are an alternative comedy crowd. <laughs> like they're not the usual. A lot of the people who like me, I always say, don't go to comedy clubs. Like they like me, they like Hari Kondabolu, they like uh, you know, they like they like a few comedians and but they don't they're not gonna go to the punchline and there's just going to Sunday night and just sit down and watch comedy. And if they do, they're going to write a blog about it the next day. <laughs> yeah, they're getting paid for their services or no, like no, no, they're advertising. Gonna be, something's going to be, they're going to get mad about something. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, okay. They're going to be like, how could this be? <laughs> no, no, they're going to be annoyed about something. Do you think, see, you said that like the alt comedy space is, is a little bit of a white scene. Do you think that's mm-hmm. like, not by design, but do you think that has to do with like, you know, it takes. I mean, it's, it's by design. I mean, I, I don't mean that in a Ku Klux Klan way. It's in a, it, it, you know, white people have more access to the means of production, or they have more, or they have more entitlement to the means of production, and there's more white comedians. Like there's so there's a yeah. lot of there's a, so therefore there's you know black people have always had to do it themselves. It's just that it doesn't necessarily get written up in the New York Times. You know, it's like the alt scene becomes this thing that becomes like. An important marker of what's going on, and 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 I'm not, and I'm like I said, I'm grateful to the all scene. A lot of my favorite comics come out of that scene: Gene Garofalo, Mark Maron, Greg Proops. Except again, Proops is a guy who totally plays mainstream comedy clubs, but also is deeply embedded in the alt scene. So, uh, you know, I think there's a sense of yeah, it's like it's a bunch of people who go, let's do what we do, but in a better place. And those people were for the most part white, and their friends were for the most part white. So that's the the design of it. But I'm not saying they excluded black people, but it becomes a space. And there's a professor from Cal named Nikki Jones who uh, talks about this a lot. This is a theory. Elijah Anderson apparently came up with the theory, the theory of white space and black space. And so if a bunch of white people want to create a space that they enjoy, it just happens they create a white space. So that is by design. And it just, and therefore, it means that if a black person comes in, sometimes, or a person of color, doesn't be a black person. Sometimes that person comes in and he goes, "They're not excluding me, but I don't feel included. Like I don't feel welcomed, and then so, or I don't feel like it's about. It's not talking to me. I sort of have to have their references, and I have to, and and then also on top of that means that sometimes somebody on stage is going to say a racist joke, and everybody around you is going to laugh, and you're going to have to choose what to do with that moment. And so, in that sense. And the, look, I got friends. And I you know I perform a lot of all scenes, but I certainly know. I remember years ago, um, uh, uh, Paul F. Tompkins. There was a thing in the L.A. Weekly. This is probably maybe seven, eight years ago. They asked him what trend in alternative comedy would you like to see die, and he said, "Ironic racism." And this is like, this is going back years ago. <laughs> this is like, I mean, it was not something I read. Probably this is something I read like probably in two thousand seven. I was like, "Thank you, Paul." I thanked him personally <laughs> recently for saying that. Because there was just a trend that like people would go, well, in the comedy clubs when they do racist things, they mean it. But here, I can drop the end bomb. But you guys know that I'm a Democrat, <laughs> you know, and you guys know I worked in the Obama campaign, so I don't mean it the same way. So, in that sense, the alt scene for a lot of black comedians is not always welcoming, you know, it, or it's not a scene where you feel like you can let your and therefore, if I can't let my hair down and do what I want to do, then I feel like I'm being judged about it. You know, you have to go find your own thing, you know. 
that's interesting so we we talk about that a lot with um homophobia there's a lot of comics that will drop like faggot mm-hmm. in their act and then be like but I, i'm like i'm an advocate for lgbt people and it's it's always this weird dance of like that didn't feel good at all like well no. i'll tell you this this is a problem i've run into recently not a bunch but i ran into it recently just sorry to interrupt um this is a joke in my act that i do that i like a lot where i use, where i drop uh the gay f-bomb as i call it when i'm not doing the joke in the joke i'm playing the character of a person who's doing it wrong and i was in portland where you're from <laughs> oregon and off stage a couple people came up to me and said that's not your word to use and I was like, I totally understand you. I n- I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm also asking if there's room for me to say it in the way that we have created room for Louis C.K. to say the end bomb. Like, and so, and and the thing is, I don't think Louis cares as much about, and I don't know him personally, but he certainly is not. People turn him into an ally. I don't think he's actually working to be an ally, and some I think he's just being himself. And so sometimes he does stuff. He's like, yeah, and sometimes it's like, oh. Uh, he's a classic uh, blog comic, <laughs> so, and I think he's great. He's one of the best, and he's a guy who also goes back between the alternative and the comedy mainstream scene. But I just sort of, but I feel a little bit like I do want you to look at me as an ally. I do want to be. I do want to do the work. Is there room for me to say that word if I'm using it in a way that I'm actually sort of, and I don't use it a lot. I use it like one and a half times. Second time I stop saying it myself from saying it, and the answer is maybe not. Now the question now the question becomes: Do I still want to do the joke? Because I think it's a good joke, and I think it actually does make a point for people who aren't in the middle of the community. People who are hearing it the way I do it go, "Oh, I never thought of it that way." The I'll tell the I'll tell what the joke is. I'm not going to tell the joke, but the joke is that, uh, and I've done it uh, that in and I'm not in that East Coast race East Coast liberalism is different than West Coast liberalism. Like West Coast liberalism is more soft and more and more like we can all come together, and that's strange to me. Because East Coast liberalism is more muscular and aggressive, and the East Coast, like Chicago, oh, not Chicago, New York and Boston, had legalized gay marriage way before California did. And and I say it's weird because if you you don't think of it that way, because on the West Coast, if you ask somebody what do you think about gay marriage, they were always like, well, if two people want to get married, that's up to them. Marriage equality is important, and I don't think the government should be involved in telling them not to do it. Oh, that's nice. You ask somebody in the West, in the East Coast, what do you think about gay marriage? And they're like, hey, I don't care what faggots do. Now that's the joke. And when people laugh, they're laughing at the fact that, like, that there is a thing in the East Coast where people will throw these words around and yet still consider themselves to be liberals. And the laugh comes there. And then I sort of back out and go, no, 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 don't say it. Like, that's the joke is me going, that's not how you say that. that, 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 that. And I hear that that joke can be that it's some, if you're a gay person in the audience or even an ally of a gay or whatever, that you can be like, ah. And yet I feel like... There's a hard thing about comedy that I find is that you're supposed to cross boundaries sometimes. If you never cross boundaries, you're not making anybody laugh. If you're not surprising people, you're not making anybody laugh. And yet, there's certainly jokes that I have done years ago that I thought I was doing the right thing, and I look back now and go, that was a mistake. So I understand that, like, just because I feel it now doesn't mean I'll always feel this way. But it's just the struggle of, not the struggle, but the the challenge of being uh, a comedian in the year 2015 who wants to be seen as an ally and also wants to wants to be the kid in the back of the class saying the inappropriate thing. Is it is it that you were approached about it? Like does does audience response criticism of your work make you like like where does the where does the hesitation around that word come from, you know? That I know how I feel about the N word and I know that like 
I don't think that's everybody. I don't. I I think that some like I think that you know that some white comedians can say it, and I'm like, yeah, that's funny. And then some people, no, and that to, to the outsider, they might not be able to see why I think one is different than the other. So I get that there's subtlety, <laughs> like that there's like that there's like that that there's a. It's not necessarily my call to make, you know. And I'll say this. I don't take all feedback. I get a lot of feedback that I don't take. So it's not so if somebody says it to me and I go and I think about it, that means I was already thinking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm not I'm not available for I mean people all the time go I don't think this or I don't think that. And you know, well, it's mm. the only person who gets that kind of access is my wife. <coughs> where she can go where we actually will have back and forth and I will change, you know, she can have access to all of it and if there's things that she really bother her, we will work to figure them out. But and I also try to write things that aren't that. I don't have a lot of jokes about my wife's a terrible person, you know, which is a very common area for stand-up comedy. Uh, so, but I, so I just think, but if somebody says to me and it sticks in my head, I go, oh, and you know, there's, it's hard because the, on the other hand, you don't want to agree with everything your comedian says, even if you think you do. You want room for that to be like <laughs> the laugh of like I can't believe he said that you know or that really was inappropriate. I mean, I remember my parents watching Chris Rock years ago, one of his big specials, and there was stuff about race that they would laugh out and high five and clap, and there was stuff about sex where they were like, "That's wrong, that's wrong," but they watched the whole thing, and when they leave, they go, "I like Chris Rock," you know, and they sort of provided the space. This like the sex stuff they weren't into, they sort of. Uh, I'm gonna get that. <laughs> maybe I, maybe that joke really was wrong. Somebody's coming to get me. Hi, how's it going? Okay. Uh, all right. I'll be right there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to do his job. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, in this room more than you are. So. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're uh, like I was saying earlier. We're in the we're in a green room in, at BU, and we're we're here very early. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that early. I mean, it's not, it'll make people think it's six in the morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. So I'm just saying that, like, my parents were able to. They, I, I saw them judge the whole thing, the totality, and not pick it apart. Interesting. And we, and we live in a pick it apart era, you know, which I think nothing survives being picked apart if you really want to get if you really want to get into it. So I have I have this kind of overarching question for you that uh, uh, that may come off as a little bit weird. So no, that's okay. Um, this whole thing is weird now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> gonna just edit in we'll, here. We'll just we'll just take a break. Oh, you said you stayed Brooklyn. Yeah, not a Holiday Inn. More than I, I haven't been here since. When's the last time I was here? I guess I did. It's been a. It's been over a year, I guess. I think. I did the Sinclair last time I was here, but I can't remember. I mean, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here more than most cities, but not as much as like New York City. I'm there a lot. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's. I I lived here as a kid a little bit, so I think maybe I'm just naturally have a natural affinity to it. So I'd like to come back, but. I don't know it enough to like go. I hit these three spots. I don't know it enough. Okay, you lived in Boston. Mm-hmm. Mattapan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's right. I live in JP. That's uh, or Jamaica Plain. That's like right. Yeah, kind of yeah, one yeah. two. Yeah. I love it over there. I kind of thought this time I would maybe I'll do it tomorrow. I would go by my old house because I remember the address just to see what it looks like. I mean, it's been th- thirty years, so yeah. That's the only house I grew up going. That's my house where I lived in for like I felt like it was my house and I had my own room and stuff. But 
it's been, like I said, it's been 30 years. Do, do you do that thing, or like, would you do that thing where you like knock on the door and like, hey, Ed. no, <laughs> black guys can't knock on doors of people's houses they don't know. No, I mean, if I saw somebody like walking out, I might go, hey, if, and they see, if, there would be a whole like, oh, that person's walking out, oh, they're smiling, and they're not in a hurry, and they looked at me, and they smiled at me, then it would be, but it wouldn't just okay. be. I would like to talk to you about the fact that I used to live here. <laughs> I now I would like to walk around, and I'm going to pull my phone out and video some things because my mom will be excited about seeing them. <laughs> That's fair. No, I won't do that. Um, so the other, the other like quick question I had about something you said was, you said that your wife sometimes influences your comedy, like in mm-hmm. you will, you will like take stuff out, you will edit stuff. Or she mostly it happens if she comes and sees me. She doesn't really because we have two kids now. She doesn't come out that often, but when she does, she might go. And a lot of times it's good things. Oh, I like that. That was good. And she'll give me tags. My wife is funny. So there's tags in my act that she's written. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of times it's just like, it's really, a, if I have a joke that I'm like, this joke might be problematic, then I'll sort of take it to her in progress. Like, it's usually something that has to do with her family or something that has to do with me saying this is what she said when she said some version of it, but not exactly that thing. Okay. Yeah. Um. That my, uh, I was wondering, do, do your kids influence? You have two kids. Yeah, I got two kids. Do, does that influence you in any way? Does oh, yeah. that change your <laughs> writing? That's the number one influence right now. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, we can. So, um, edit back in wherever. Yeah. <laughs> that. I was gonna say that was that was so Boston. That was. So, <laughs> it's like a little New York does that too. There's a little bit of like that where it's just like, look, man. He's like, I'm in a union. I got, <laughs> I got 18 garbage cans to empty, and I got and if I I get, need to get them done by three because they won't give me overtime. <laughs> like, so like so, I'm emptying these garbage cans. Uh, I do this every day. You're new. I'm not new. And, right. This yeah. is my room. My, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> My job is to empty these garbage cans out, and I'm not worried about it. And I'm going to do it the way I do it. I'm not going to get quieter because you guys are here. I'm not, I see you holding microphones. Not, not my problem. You picked my room to empty to uh, sit in while I empty the garbage cans. We did. We fucked up. Like not. Yeah, it's just funny. It's funny. <laughs> Because there's no sense about like the fact that like we well, realize this whole school was built for the purposes like this, like two people talking and doing things. It, that if the school goes away, these garbage cans won't. But <laughs> <laughs> if the school ceases to exist, you won't still have the garbage can. But I also understand he's a man who's working, he's doing his job. So I just thought I'll just get quiet and let him finish. But then it was like, how long is it going to take? Forty-five minutes later, uh, <laughs> still yes. doing the garbage kids. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about your 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 kids. So when you, I don't have kids when you when you have kids how does that like what what changes about your writing or your act like how does that i mean you can't help but write stuff about your kids because it's just something you know comics write about things they think about a lot so when you don't have kids you write about trying to get laid or or uh that crazy tv show that you hate or that you love or they're sort of you sort of are able you're so you're able to sort of carefully craft the things you think a lot about like i like this so i'm gonna put this in my head whereas when you have kids your kids push a lot of stuff out and if you don't use that if you don't write about that then you're really wasting some opportunities but certainly there's been a lot of people who wrote about their kids and then the challenge becomes how can i do it in a way that's different from other people well for me it's just everything i do is through sort of a lens of race and oppression and and inclusions or I attempt to do that so then how do I so then it's about noticing the things with my kids that are about that and then documenting those things and writing them down it's like I have a joke in my act right now where I talk about talking to my daughter about Caitlyn Jenner which is a real thing that happened I didn't do it for the joke I didn't say we're gonna talk about you should know Caitlyn Jenner is about just about 
the trans identity and the joke is sort of about how clumsy I am in talking about it because I don't and I own that I don't know enough about it to really have a discussion so by the end of the joke I'm like do you have an email where I could send you some links <laughs> you know so it's like <laughs> and it, to me it's like a it's a, I think it's good because it clearly shows I'm not an expert but I don't do any, I don't think I do anything in the joke that makes me look worse See, it's like it's like the new version of the joke we talked about earlier like that joke is sort of like either it's cl- I the way the jokes is written it's like it's sort of forces the person to hear the f word to make a choice the the gay f-bomb but this one is like no you get to see me stumble through it as a guy who's like i really don't know i'm trying to figure this out and the the hopefully you go it's better that he's talking about it than not talking about it and also he's acknowledging he needs to learn more about it so hopefully he'll learn more about it so that was such an interesting kind of cultural like touchstone that we all just went through Mm -hmm. it's weird how it's kind of over now yeah, it just stopped. Well, it's, like, the sh- it's funny. A lot of it written around the show. The show came out. Apparently, the show is not. I don't know. I, I haven't watched any of the show, but the show did not do well ratings wise. I think if the show had been a ratings juggernaut of the size of like the Kardashian shows, we would still be talking about it. But it just shows how a lot of our attention span is like, can you explain this? Com- if this complicated issue can be explained in a way that's entertaining or voyeuristic, then I'll pay attention. But if it's not entertaining or voyeuristic, then I'm not really going to pay attention. So, you know. Like the Diane Sawyer interview basically sort of ruined what the show could have done because like it was like we everybody feels like they got it I got it now but then the show was like there's more well how entertaining is it well it's not really it's really about a you know so. it's just the, it's just their life now yeah, it's like just, it's just the life of yeah. and it's also sort of sort of uh, Caitlyn Jenner's life but also sort of a reality show version of Caitlyn Jenner's life like. It'd probably be better if an actual documentary filmmaker went in and did it, you know, and, you know, who was like, no, we're really going to look at this. But because it's a, like it's on the E channel, it just can't. But then you go, some people are watching this because it's on E who would never watch a documentary film about it. So it's a, it's a, it's a feel the same way about that show I feel about Totally Bias. You don't get everybody. You just got to get the right people. I wanted to talk to you about Totally Bias. That, so when I was, I think, uh, Totally Bias was 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. So that was right as I was getting out of college and I remember like watching that almost religiously and being like this it like I I don't know what space this show is occupying but it is something unique yeah and yeah. I, sorry this is like yeah oh your show is so great <laughs> well I mean I I appreciate that people it has had a it has it has had, it's had longer legs than I guessed really I get I mean when it was over I just was so ready for it to be over because it sort of started to fall down collapse under its own weight um and it and we were all sort of the, the entire staff was sort of feeling the weight of the show and just because it was like we were five days a week and we weren't getting good ratings and you know just, we just knew it was like this has to, we knew something I knew something had to change dramatically for the show to continue and that and the thing that changed dramatically is that they canceled it so like it was like well, that's a good dramatic change too uh but yes, uh, a friend of mine compared it very lovingly and nicely compared it to the Velvet Underground album. Like, the, like, like only ten thousand people bought their first album, but all those ten thousand people started bands. <laughs> like, so like each, so I feel like that way. In the same way that like I meet people regularly who are a generation who are younger than me who are like basically like I'm either a comic and because that inspired me to do this or a teachers who are like I share I use these clips in classes. So it it continues forward in a way that canceled talk shows don't often continue forward. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, like what this is this is another kind of odd question, but like what what does that feel like for you to be in the spot of almost like a cultural taste maker kind of like do you know what i mean like you're you're a comic but you're also a comic that people kind of look at as like okay wh- where is the where is the like morality line on issues that like 
You know? Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't see it that way. Uh, I guess I, I, my identity at this point is probably 80% dad and 20% other stuff. So, you know, the thing that I'm best at is being a dad. Like, that's the thing where I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a great dad. I know I'm a great dad. I'm a decent person. Um, I think sometimes there is a feeling of like when big cultural things happen that I feel like I owe it to myself and to whoever's listening to sort of comment on them. And sometimes the work of being a dad means I can't be on top of everything because, like, unless I'm actually – sometimes I gotta let that go. Like, I can't, I can't watch – I can't live tweet every Democratic and Republican debate because that's bedtime. <laughs> like, so, like, I'll read it tomorrow like everybody else does, you know. So uh, there is sometimes I feel like a, like a little bit of just, like, responsibility to continue to put forth uh, sort of relevant topical ideas. And I've – release myself from that pressure because that's not feeling the pressure to do it doesn't make it good it's better like last night i was i i watched uh, the last episode of project Greenlight, which is something i've been following pretty intently and after it was over i tweeted like 15 tweets about it and i was like i felt like this is what i do <laughs> like you know like, I, I don't have time to write a uh, an article about it but this is like i feel very like I have to allow myself to do it the way that i my life has time for me to do it and not really feel the pressure of like every day like I've 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 given up my Twitter jealousy of like my single comedian friends who are just like twenty four hours a day. And another thing, and another thing, because I look, they don't have kids. <laughs> you know, it is funny. I was looking at I was looking at uh, Pat Oswalt's the other day, but just at his like Twitter because he's hysterical, and it was like at kids soccer game, still at kids soccer game, and that was just like his joke was just like yep. still there hanging yep. out. And you know, and, and I think there's also a thing when my kids get older, I will be able to engage in a different way than I can right now. Uh, I mean, like, and I'm working. I'm I'm working harder right now than I've ever worked in my life. There's a lot of projects I have going on. It's just knowing that, like, working on those. Pro- Sometimes I'm like, people don't know that I'm working on something right now, but they will when it comes out. So, like, I just did a live uh, talk show called Come Out Right Now at, for KALW Radio in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it was a live hour-long talk show in the totally in the spirit of totally bias, but done for radio. That was topical and relevant, and it felt it was amazing. It took about a, like a, two months to put together, and nobody knew what the work was. But then when it was out, I'm like, "Look at this thing I've been working on!" So, you know, I have a lot of projects that I'm coordinating and trying to put together. It's just and and eventually they will see the light of day, or they will crash against the shore. But I also have to just release myself from like the need to be heard on every topic every day. See so that. That space that we were talking about is kind of it's 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 like the same thing that I think a lot of people feel about John Stewart is that like, and and it's very apparent now that he's gone of like, how do how do I feel about stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I'm wondering like, so you said that like you've had to release yourself from that. Like, what? How do you? Do you just do you do that intentionally? Do you do that like? Does that just kind of? I'm a dad now, you know. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm hopefully, I'll be dead for a while. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. yeah. It. Yeah. It's, it has to be like a like you can't stop feeling guilty about not, uh, you know, live tweeting the the blah 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 thing that everybody's talking about on Twitter. Stop feeling guilty about not being caught up on the TV show Empire, you know. So like, stop feeling guilty about like things that are like or that the blog that goes or the article that goes around on Monday that you don't read it till Wednesday, you know, and that you're still allowed to comment on on Wednesday if you want to, uh, you know, that thing, that's a thing like every, like every week there's some big thing and sometimes I don't get to it right away. And I have windows on my computer open like 15 and I'm like, I haven't read that thing. That was from last week. Just stop feeling. Cause ultimately it's good. I do stay informed and I'm still informed about things, but I don't have to comment on all of them and I don't have to, because 
there's a longer picture. There's a, there's a longer career arc here. It's not just about what's going on this week. So, uh, like this K this K A L W show. If that becomes a regular show, I will be back in the you know when we do it once a week, like we were talking about. It'll, I'll be back in that space again, but I'll be doing it for a reason. You know, so it's like if it becomes like a job, then I'll do it for the job. But I can't just sort of like expect to keep up with, uh, you know, the, you know, other people. <laughs> because there's so many people I'm thinking about I can't keep up with, you know. And I just sometimes I just hope I hope people who like me aren't like, where did he? Like, I mean, I think sometimes there's like a where did they go? And I'm like, I'm right here working very hard. <laughs> you know, like and you, you'll see it eventually, you know. Well, it's hard when you have a daily TV show and then all of a sudden you're. You, you're not on TV. Some of that was great. I mean, initially it was great. I was happy to be gone for a while, and it took me a while to sort of, you know, recon- reconstitute myself. And and moving back to the Bay Area was a big part of that. Like sort of like let me get to where I can breathe and and I can walk outside and feel like people like me because they liked me because I lived here since '97, not because I had a TV show. I, I mean, you. they like me more because of that because that's how TV works. But you know, joking, just so people know. But also, <laughs> it's like. I could feel like I could walk around and see people I've known for a long time or know people who've been invested in my success for a long time and feel uh, they feel connected to me, which is why, you know, when things happen in the Bay Area that are shitty, I feel like I have to make a bigger deal of those, too, because, like, people know I'm li- I live out there. Interesting. So you, you mentioned earlier this, this sort of longer career arc. You have this new show coming out on CNN in 2016. Mm-hmm. I don't know. if th- Is there like a month on it now? No, or? there's no. I mean, I, uh, 2016, bef- earlier than later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not. I don't think it's not the second half of 2016, but they haven't given me an exact date yet. So I think sometime springish. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I United think they're really Shades trying to make sure that it uh, United Shades of America. It's a it's a it's a travel document. It's a docu-series as they call them now it's a travel show we have as we used to call them uh it's a you know it's a race and culture travel show so instead of sampling food i sample race and culture and racism so it's a it's a it's like for people who like the totally biased parts of me talking doing man on the streets and talking to people this is that but it's taken further out so i get to hang out with people and go to their houses and experience some things yeah that's gonna be so fabulous i've, I've been yeah that looks really, really, really great. Yeah, I think it, I mean we taped it already. It's sitting on a shelf somewhere. There's yeah, it already exists. <laughs> like, really? Yeah, it exists. It's, oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, it's it's just waiting for CNN. Is they're not really an entertainment network, so they don't have a ton of space for stuff. So and they're also I think they like it a lot. So I think they're trying to make sure it gets a good position on the network on the lineup. So uh, they've told me they like it a lot. So unless they're lying, which people in those positions do, but I, they do like it a lot. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I think they're holding it for the right time. And that's why I, my my goal is to pretend like the TV show is not happening, so that I can not so I can stay busy every day. Because you know it'd be easy to sit around and wait for a TV show to come out, but having gone through the totally biased thing, and also knowing that I want to be have several projects for the rest of my career, not one. You know that it's like it's up to me to sort of keep things going. So I'm working on trying to record a comedy special, working on this radio show with KLW. Got this po- Denzel Washington podcast, like you know. So I'm just trying to, you know. There's other things like just it's important to me to, you know. The thing I learned in the Bay Area th- that I like to do is like, it's, you know, there used to be a dog food commercial where it's like this dog food makes its makes its own gravy. Like you pour water on it, and it makes it. And I feel like yeah, I'm making my own gravy. <laughs> like I'm not waiting for somebody <laughs> else to make some gravy for me. I am making my own gravy. Do you think at any point in your trajectory you wind up doing? Politi- like you're obviously a very funny person, but do you think you wind up doing politics? I feel like there's that absolutely no chance of that. No, okay. <laughs> there's, nope. no, there's absolutely 
no. I recently I had a, like a, a come to Jesus moment with myself where I was like, I'm a comedian, and I think sometimes because of the things I talk about and the things I associate myself with and the things and the people I associate myself with and the things I do, you know, people sometimes describe me like, how do you want me to describe you as a activist or no, 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 like. There are people who are activists, and it can and it probably says so on their tax forms. I am not an activist. I I am like minded with activists. I can work with activists, but my job is to be the funny guy. And it sort of took pressure off me to try to because I think it can be easy to get caught up in the work that in this kind in work that involves this these subjects and this painful issues. Get caught up in the importance of the work, and if you are a comedian and caught up in in importance, then you will become way less funny. And so for me, it goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier. There's got to be room for me to say the wrong thing. There's got to be room for me to say, be personally like, I said this thing, I don't know why I said it. Like to, whereas if you're an activist or a politician, you're, in a, you're supposed to be in a business where you can't, you're sort of in a place where you can't make mistakes because people's lives are on the line. And I respect those people too much to think that I can just sort of segue into that. I respect activists too much. Politicians, not so much. But to sort of think that I can sort of, and I think I think the word activist got thrown on me when I got totally biased because it was a way for people in the industry to understand that I'm not your regular that I'm not a, your regular comedian. But I'm not. And I mean, I work with activists. I want to do more work with activists uh, right now. Like a lot. I, that's the one place I do feel guilt because I have two small children. Like I just don't have between working to provide for my family and creating projects. I don't have the time to do the things I'd like to do. But I certainly plan to do more work and use and hopefully become a big enough comedian that then in addition to any on the ground work I do that my name can help in some way or I can help raise money or I can show up and draw attention to things but not in any way replace the work of like think that I'm doing the same work as Black Lives Matters. So that like this is um, that saying the wrong thing Black Lives Matters is doing is into that I don't want people to think I think the, the hashtag is Black Lives Matters. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Lives Matters is doing. New hashtag, yeah. You can always yeah. start new ones. Yeah, that's what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Start that war. <laughs> you know, I invented a better hashtag, Black Lives Matter. No, yeah. So I wanted I wanted to to bring up with you that that in your role as a comedian, you you sometimes say the wrong things, and it's to highlight injustices. The wrong or, yeah, the wrong <laughs> yeah. to get that yeah. stuff out there. Yeah. Do you, do you think that? Um, I've used the word space a lot here, but I'm going to do right. it again. Um, the, that space is going away with our with our kind of tendency to like police each other on language and th- those sorts of things. I mean, I think it, it's certainly being, you know, is it going away? I think I think that the issue is this. The comedians who have to apologize, and I might find myself in a position at some point, are the comedians who have jobs. Like Gilbert Gottfried sent out a bunch of tweets after the Japanese tsunami, and he got fired for it, which is why he sort of had to, I don't know if he apologized, but because he had done this thing, he lost his job. Tracy Morgan did the stand-up in, I think it was Nashville, said the horrible thing, and then, uh, you know, basically, I don't I don't know this for sure, but from what I understand, Tina Fey reached out and was like, you can't do that, you gotta apologize, and you gotta go meet with Glad. <laughs> like, you know, so he did that, and he is, and if you've been around Tracy, which I have, he he totally regrets that and didn't, didn't understand and now does not want to be thought of as that guy. But also he had a job at NBC at the time. Cat Williams has done a lot of crazy things, and he never has to apologize. And so I think that there's some... If you just want to be a comedian, then you can say whatever you want to do. But the minute you involve yourself with other people's 
commerce and properties and 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 capitalism you might have to you you might have to apologize and i think it becomes about can you define your brand well enough that people understand that that's a part of your brand like louis ck has kind of defined his brand in an amazing way and his partners at fx have a real hands-off approach to what he does so he's in this perfect position uh or a very good position not all of us are in that position but i do think that we do have to come up with a system of understanding that just because somebody says something wrong one time or says something wrong a lot and then has that we shouldn't all we shouldn't always throw them away and i think that uh you know, like I think about Trevor Noah at The Daily Show. Like, he had a bunch of tweets that people pointed out that things were... And I think on some level, can you look at that and see that as a guy who was in his early to mid-20s, who was traveling around the world as a comedian, probably having the time of his life, and wasn't thinking about one day I'm going to be the liberal pope of The Daily Show? <laughs> can, you, can you just look at it? And if you pull him aside and talk to him about it, it seems to me he's like he's you know he respects the fact that this job means being a different living a different type of life than the one he was living, and if he continues to not if he doesn't respect that then we you know then we have to decide then people have to decide then you know, uh, I think a lot but I do think that like because we're gonna live our lives out in public like this, there has to be there has to be some sort of multi tiered forgiveness system we can't we can't throw everybody away you know. I mean, I just read John Ronson's book about public shaming, and a lot of people in that book get thrown away for, like, one stupid mistake. And we've all made one stupid mistake. We just didn't used to film them or tweet them, you know. We used to, like, just sort of make our mistakes, you know, in private. And I think that if we're going to make our mistakes in front of everybody, then we have to sort of accept people's humanity. And I'm not – that, and also understand there's a difference between uh, Bill Cosby and Jared Fogle from Subway – and uh, you know, somebody sending out some inappropriate tweets. Yeah, like living a predatory life is like the, right now there isn't a difference between somebody living a predatory life and then somebody getting drunk and saying something fucking or just, stupid. Or just yeah, like when, we, <laughs> when I sit around with my friends, we say horrible, obnoxious things. Now, if they started live tweeting them, I would be in trouble. Some, but that's you're supposed to be with your friends. I think people were looking at the early days of Twitter as your friends. Oh, and they're, that's not. They're not your friends. No. No. They're, they're, your, they're, your, uh, they're, they're stool pigeons. <laughs> they're, like they're, they're, they're people waiting for you to say something great or waiting for you to say something horrible. And kind of they don't judge either way. It's kind of like we'll take either one. If it's super great, we'll retweet it a lot. If it's horrible, we'll retweet it a lot. And, and, and a lot of that is, I think, also becomes about Twitter, I think, at some point. If Twitter's to last, which that's a whole other subject. It's not, it's, it's not making money. Twitter has to also embrace the fact that we're humans. They can't treat us like bots. That is so. I, I want to be respectful of your time here. Uh, we're we're really running right up against the edge bit. Um, I gotta go. I gotta go back to the hotel and change clothes. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to really. Oh, quick, we're still good. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you. So we we like to end these, and this has been really really great and really easy. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. I just I just had some, just had my first coffee for the day, so I'm ready to talk. I mean, I you know I'm sort of my intention with these things is to try to keep them as easy and and free flowing as possible, while at the same time, not wanting uh, wanting people to understand that like, you know, my intention is to be thoughtful in everything I do. Doesn't mean it's always going to come off thoughtful, and doesn't mean that I'm always going to be thoughtful. But certainly understand that at the core, and this is about you know talking about having kids. Having two daughters changes, like it changes, it changes my DNA. You know, it sort of like rewires. So there's things that I would have done five years ago that I won't do now. But it doesn't mean that I'm not still 
I don't still have part of that five years ago DNA, and sometimes I'd be like, oh, oh, yeah. And again, the soul of a comedian is the soul of somebody who wants to say the wrong thing at the right time or the right thing at the wrong time. And though that's a very, that's a tightrope. So the the thing we the thing we try to do at the end here is and this this definitely ties into what you were just saying is we have a lot of fans at the Ally Coalition who like who really like kind of alt rock music who tend to be like 15 to 20 mm-hmm. and and those are the people that we really speak to and mm-hmm. and I'm wondering do you do you have any advice do you have anything that you want to get out to people of those ages that like here's my journey you're on your own type stuff like you know when i think about people who are like 15 now there's a part of me and i don't know if everybody thinks is really envious of a 15 year old right now and in a 15 year old right now might not understand this but here comes an old man's explanation when i was 15 other than my my two best friends or or three best friends who i two of them went to the same high school as i another one who went to another high school for the most part i felt alone and those guys weren't we were three friends or four friends but like we weren't really the same like my best friend jason who's still my best friend now was a deadhead long-haired weed smoker i was a not a weed smoker martial arts enthusiast black mom who's an academic half activist and so we're not like in what we do we just felt we both felt alone you know and separate from our school now thanks to the internet there's an opportunity to not feel alone all the time. Now that doesn't mean there's not filled with potholes out there in the internet, but you can go on on you can go find groups of people who are like you who can help you get through your shit. And for me, that's like a huge that I would have had a different life if that had been the case. Maybe I wouldn't have been a comedian. I would be a successful investment banker, <laughs> but because I was broken on the inside, I became a comedian. And so for me, it's like you know, if you're 15 struggling right now take advantage of the resources that are around you that you can get to on your own. You don't have to ask anybody's permission to get to them, you know? And I think that that's a, that's a, that's a big difference from when I was 15. Like, you know, when I felt down and depressed, which I did and still do sometimes, you know, I didn't, what would you make a phone call? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, what am I going to do? Tell my teacher, like, you know, like, but now there are, there are resources out there and this podcast is a part of them, the ally coalition where, don't be afraid to reach out for help when you need it. And, and thanks in the twenty in the twenty first century, one thing we can do better is we can we can we can get things quicker and more efficiently. So help is one of those things. So yes, please. Uh, uh, yeah, don't. Uh, you're not alone in the same way that I was when I was fifteen. I think I think that's a perfect place to to call it a day. Come out. Thank you so much. Also listen to the band Urban Dance Squad. They were big. They weren't that big when I was 15, <laughs> but I still like them. I listen to them all the time. You'll like them. They're great. Urban Dance Squad. Now we can end it. All right. <laughs> I don't want it to be all old man wisdom. <laughs>